I'm very pleased to be introducing tonight's moderator, Mr. Steve Padilla. Mr. Padilla is an assistant national editor with the Los Angeles Times. In his 22 years with the paper, he has served in a variety of reporting and editing positions, including editor of higher education and religion, and frequently lectures on writing. Before joining the Times, Steve was founding editor of Hispanic Link Weekly Report, a national newsletter on Latino affairs based in Washington, D.C. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Steve Padilla. Good evening. Thank Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for, for coming out tonight. Let me quickly introduce our panel, and we're going to keep the introductions brief so we can get to the good stuff, okay? Um, we're going to start with Jennifer Lee. She's an associate professor of sociology at the University of California at Irvine. Go Anteaters. Uh, and she has been a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. And she's the co-author, you're going to love the title of this book, Civility in the City, Black Jews and Koreans in Urban America. And her most recent book, co-authored with Frank Bean, that's correct, mm -hmm. uh, is the forthcoming The Diversity Paradox, Immigration and the Color Line in the 21st Century. And you're going to hear her say some interesting things about how the census helped define or I guess we could say define mm -hmm. uh, and quantify the color line in America. And then we have uh, Mr. Peter M. Ong. He's a professor uh, at UCLA's School of Public Affairs and at the Department of Asian American Studies. He's conducted research on immigration, civic and political participation, and the economic status of minorities, among other topics. He also has served as an advisor to the census. Then we have Jorge Mario Cabrera Valladares. I love that name. Um, he is the Director of uh, Public Relations for the Coalition of, of Humane Immigrant Rights in Los Angeles. It's often known uh, as CHIRLA. Um, he was born in El Salvador was, and came to the U.S. in 1982. Before his current position, he worked at the uh, Clinica para las Americas and the Central American Resource Center and the National Alliance of Latin American and Caribbean Communities. And then at the end, we have Arturo Vargas. He's the executive director of the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials. We all know it as NALEO. Um, and uh, prior to joining NALEO, he was the vice president for community education and public policy for the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. We all know that as MALDEF. Uh, he is a nationally recognized expert on Latino demographic trends, electoral participation, and just about anything else. Uh, voting rights, the census, and redistricting. So please welcome our panelists. Okay, um, the, it seems that every 10 years, just before the census count actually begins, uh, the census makes headlines uh, because someone wants to, to, um, to change it uh, just a bit. And that happened uh, just this month. Uh, the census made headlines when uh, Senator David Vitter of Louisiana put forth a proposal that many viewed as fairly controversial. Uh, some people called it xenophobic. Um, Arturo, you want to tell us what, what happened just this month in Washington? Well, I think you're right. It's every 10 years you get a controversy, and this is one controversy that we see now in every census, at least since 1970. Okay. And that is efforts to not include in the census either non-citizens or non-citizens who are not here in a documented fashion. So what happened uh, just last week was that an amendment was defeated on a procedural motion by the United States Senate that would have uh, prohibited the Census Bureau from using its funds to enumerate non-citizens. Okay, so not just the undocumented, but all non-citizens mm -hmm. for purposes of including them in the count to reapportion Congress. Mm -hmm. Now, what was interesting about this particular vote it was that it only, it, we got the 60 votes to vote for cloture, which mm -hmm. is like the kind of vote that we just heard about on Saturday night and, and health, health bill, yeah. 
we tried to get cloture three weeks ago, mm-hmm. and we couldn't get muster the votes. And Senator Reed had to hold the appropriations bill for Commerce, State, and the Justice Departments for three weeks until he could get the 60 votes for cloture, because had cloture not been invoked, mm-hmm. the amendment would have gone forward, and we would never have gotten the 60 votes to defeat that amendment. It would have passed, okay. probably with all Republican votes, maybe just 39, mm-hmm. and about 12 to 14 Democratic votes. I see, mm. I see. And, but the, the motion that wasn't essentially defeated was a little different from what Mr. Vitter originally proposed, correct? What, what was that? Well, no, the amendment itself was never defeated. Okay. By but, cloture being but, invoked. But being held off. The uh, Senate parliamentarian had already ruled the amendment non-germane. Mm. Yes. So senators were given an option here to take a vote that was not on Vitter, but allowed Vitter to be defeated. Right, but let me just rephrase that, that but his original proposal called for something even more drastic, did it not? It was for the inclu- mm. exclusion of undocumented, but it got right. more drastic, because yeah. then he decided mm. to just exclude anybody who's not a citizen. Mm-hmm. You know, doesn't this guy read the Constitution? <laughs> the Constitution clearly says that there should be an enumeration of all persons. Mm-hmm. Well, what does the Constitution specify? What does it require? Uh, Paul, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, basically, mm-hmm. we, because of dynamics in terms of the population, people move mm-hmm. uh, different growth rates and so forth. The population, mm-hmm. each state grows at a different rate. And if we can have meaning in terms of fair representation, it means we have to adjust the number of congressional seats. So the mandate really is to enumerate the population, everybody who's represented not who vote, but who's represented in our system, every 10 years so we can have the right number of congressional seats. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we do it. That's the core mandate, that we count the people so we can apportion the congressional seats appropriately to each state according to its population. There are other things we do beyond that, for example, uh, the extension of voting rights. And so we need to collect information that helps us enforce the voting rights, which means collecting information, for example, on the racial composition. And then we add on top of that other things, programmatic things. If we can allocate money for employment, we can allocate money for housing, we need to have some sort of information so we could reasonably allocate public resources. Mm-hmm. Can, you, you mentioned backstage that this census is gonna be different, very different from previous ones. Could you tell the audience about that? Okay. Um, the last few decades, you actually got one of two forms. If you were lucky, you got what we call the short form. And, that's, <laughs> and for some people, that was even too long. The short form yeah. just asks you know, all members of your household, uh, enumerate them, their age, their gender, their uh, race, Hispanic and their Hispanic origin. And that's basically, that's the short form. The long form, one in six households, roughly, got the long form. That's where we collect information on the detailed demographics, uh, marital status, uh, information on the economic status in terms of your occupation, your earnings, uh, detailed information on housing characteristics, the number of rooms, uh, how much you pay for your mortgage. And so we did that. And we did that mm-hmm. for very good reasons, both so we know who we are, but also for public policy and enforcement of laws and allocation. What we're doing now is that you will only get the short form. If you got the wrong form, don't fill it out, because you should not have gotten it. So we have actually changed our data system dramatically since 2000. That is, every 10 years, we just do the straight enumeration. Actually, the core of the the constitutional requirement. 
And now we collect the detailed demographics, socioeconomic characteristics, housing data through the, what's called the American Community Survey, which is an ongoing survey done every month, uh, roughly 2.5% of the population every year. And that gives us timely information in terms of the detail. Yeah. Just, just to add one yeah. correction yeah. to that oh. is, so it's going to happen every month. So while we're doing the census, the American Community Survey will still be conducted. Yes. So there are going to be about 50,000, no, 250,000 households per month in March and April that will get two forms. They get two, but not the official long census form. Right. They're called American Community Survey. Right. So they're going to get a long form and they're yes. going to get the census form. Yes. So, you know, half a million people are going to be really out of luck because they yeah. get two forms. <laughs> Do your homework. You were going to say something. Yeah. Another difference is the fact that for the first time ever, you'll have the census in Spanish. Um, yeah. Many, many people will get, if, depending on their, certain, their surname, will get the form in Spanish, which is interesting because you now have, based on, um, on what we were talking about earlier, not only this massive decennial count that is significant uh, for the country's future, but you also have this count happening in the middle of one of the most divisive um, uh, uh, arguments in the nation, mm -hmm. and that is, should we or should we not have immigration reform? Mm -hmm. And why it becomes important is because many folks feel that if they are not given immigration reform, then why should they be counted, you mm -hmm. see? And that's where the issue of this boycott census that we can talk about a little bit later comes in. But this is happening alongside a number of different factors that are going to influence. Hopefully, we can fight those factors uh, before it's too late, but these are going to influence um, the number of people that will participate. Well, let, let me just play devil's advocate. Why should the form be sent out in Spanish? Is it sent out in other languages other than English? As far as I know, no. This is the okay. first time that it will be sent out. Actually, it's going to be sent out in a bilingual format, yes. mm -hmm. oh, in both English okay. and Spanish, mm -hmm. to 13 million households, to those mm -hmm. areas where census tracts have been identified by the Census Bureau as being linguistically isolated, where at mm -hmm. least 20% of the population speaks Spanish. Mm -hmm. So not every Spanish-speaking household will get it. 13 million will. There mm -hmm. are 20 million Latinos households in the country. Mm -hmm. And what about any other languages? There will be, the census form itself is going to be printed in six languages. Mm -hmm. English, Spanish, Korean, Chinese, so one other Asian language, and Russian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but there will be 56 languages Mm -hmm. in which there will be language assistance guides available. Mm -hmm. The same rationale, meaning a small group of people have not responded or large numbers of people did not respond? Uh, no, the, well, we have been asking for a bilingual form for decades. Mm -hmm. But this was the first time that the Census Bureau felt confident enough they could, they could micro-target the mailing of the bilingual form to those areas where it actually would be used. Was that the reason for the delay in a Spanish ballot? Uh, the, the, having the technology to identify the right areas, or was, or was there political pressure? Well, I think the, the Census Bureau is extremely sensitive to any criticism. So it was particularly sensitive to any backlash that it would get from a household that would receive a bilingual form where English only is spoken. Mm -hmm. And that then, as a result, that household would mm -hmm. refuse to respond. Yeah. But now they feel they could micro-target it, target it enough that they could uh, mail out the bilingual form. But the challenge that we now have is that we know that there are pockets of emerging immigrant populations all over the country where Spanish only is spoken and the population that speaks Spanish does not rise to 20% or more of the population. Mm -hmm. So take Tennessee. Mm -hmm. We know there are emerging pockets of Spanish-speaking immigrants in Tennessee and Oklahoma and Arkansas, and they're not 20% or more of the population. Yeah. They're going to receive the form in English only. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. So our challenge as advocates and as messengers of the census message is to be able to educate those folks about how to get a form in a language that they can mm -hmm. read. How, Actually, how, I think that's yes. a really important point that he just mentioned because um, there's a lot of research that's done in immigration that looks at um, the fact that immigrants are moving to new destination states in the South. And so the, I didn't realize that they were, if they're under 20%, that the census will not deliver a bilingual form, which means that they will not be counted. Right. That's why the use of Spanish language media is going to be so important to the census. Because this, you know, this was the first census in which Latinos are the nation's second largest population group. We're 47 million of the U.S. population. And the Census Bureau understands that it will have a failed census if it does not accurately count the Latino population. So the onus really is on how do we reach these 47 million Latinos. And yet I have read about um, an effort by a coalition of Latinos, of, I think principally pastors, um, who want to boycott the census. Could you explain what that's Correct. about? And part of it is linked to what I was mentioning earlier about the uh, non-movement of an immigration reform bill in Congress. Mm -hmm. President Obama promised that when he came in, President Bush um, told us basically that he was committed, uh, except that he didn't put political capital into it. And of course, President Clinton also mentioned it as a priority in his administration. Obviously, none of these folks have come through yet. Mm -hmm. And what some folks feel is, not only are you raiding my work site, are you raiding my home, um, but you're deporting my family, you're keeping me in the shadows, and I know that by counting me, you'll get money. This is the argument. Okay. You'll get money, you'll get political clout, but you don't give me anything back. So I'm not going to participate with this process. Mm -hmm. As Chirla, we have been vehemently against a boycott because we feel that it, it's counterproductive. It's, it does completely the opposite of what supposedly it would do if we stay away from the census. Do you know if that argument is resonating anywhere? Well, let me give you a quick, on? Let me give you a quick example. We visited a family in Pico Union just recently. Okay. The dad said, 55-year-old said, count me in for not being counted. The son said, we should definitely be counted. This is about power, dad. The daughter said, you know what, I'm not sure if the government should know how many of us there are in this country because they could use it the wrong way. And the mom said, when is the census anyway? <laughs> you see? And that's the challenge, I think, that we're going to face in these very, very diverse communities. And not just Latinos, by the way, but certainly in communities that are um, uh, not counted or they're in rural mm. areas. For example, mm. homeless population just mm. in Los Angeles, yeah. 170,000 people were not counted uh, the last census. Mm. And that meant 93, $493 million that supposedly we didn't get. Just, just, that's just money. Well, Paul, I know you've done some research on this. What accounts for undercounts, so to speak? Uh, I mean, one of the biggest uh, problems we have is that there's no perfect census. It's going to fail. Okay, but the question is how much you're going to fail by and what nature is going to fail. So we will miss people, we will undercount. In some ways, undercount doesn't matter a whole lot in reapportionment and allocation. Sorry, I had to say that. <laughs> the reason you can think of it this way is if every state and every population is randomly undercounted the same proportion, we end up with the same allocation and but same apportionment. But they're not. Uh -huh. What we're really concerned about is what we call the differential undercount. Uh -huh. That is, certain geographic areas, certain populations tend to be overrepresented among the undercount. Why? 
Uh, a number of reasons, there's no single reason that's why dealing with this problem is so hard. Uh, one is that we can't reach them. Uh, if you look at Los Angeles, for example, we have housing units that are not official. They're not recorded. It, you can't get the form. So just reaching people is a difficulty. Well, my, my own newspaper them, once reported huge numbers of folks living in, uh, in garages. In garages. You know, thousands, it, thousands. Or, or what we have is housing units that get subdivided. And you don't have separate addresses for them. So who does the letter go to, the, the form? The other one is that even if you get it to them, uh, they may not understand it. Uh, for example, uh, many of the, in the Asian American community are immigrants. They don't speak English, they don't uh, read in English. Mm -hmm. And so how do you get to them? There's a peer communication barrier that you have to overcome. The other one is that maybe they just, it's not a priority. Uh, the mother says, when is it? When is it? It's an indication, mm -hmm. you know, I got other things in life to do, mm -hmm. rather than sit there and fill out a form in some evening. Uh, the other one is that uh, there are some who are fearful. Uh, it could be the undocumented, it could be the legal citizens, but the issue of privacy has become a major thing now. Uh, that is, uh, we're scared to lose our privacy. What guarantee does the Census Bureau have that my privacy will be protected? Well, what so, guarantee do they have? Um, I've actually been very impressed by the professionalism. There's been only one incident where they released data that they violated the confidentiality, the promise to you in terms of not disclosing the data. And, and that was, was the Japanese-American during World War II. Okay, so that's true. That's true, and they apologized for it. Okay, you want to, maybe we're speaking in tongues here. Maybe you should okay. explain what's going on yeah. here. We're talking about the internment in World War II. Uh, hmm. two, two issues. Uh, one is the Bureau of Census, when they ask you to fill out the form, they make a promise that they would not release your data until essentially you pass away. 72 years later. Yeah. Uh, and that's part of the promise. That's one of the ways they tried to get you to cooperate, and they think it's very important. Uh, during World War II, uh, we had a hysteria here in California, in the West Coast, the nation as a whole. Essentially, what we said is that if you're Japanese-American, regardless whether you're born in this country or not, you were going to be seen as a potential threat, a military threat. And so how did they identify the individuals? How did they identify the communities to round up people? Unfortunately, the Bureau of Census cooperated to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And that was a violation of their promise to protect information they collected. And, and if it, memory serves correctly, it was about 110,000 Japanese about, Americans. I think two-thirds uh, U.S.-born citizens. Right. What about the right. current hysteria that we are living in now? The Patriot Act, uh, this whole need to sort of protect the, the motherland and so forth from terrorism. Would, would the Patriot Act, could, could it be used no. to get into that? No, it, and here's what's going on with that issue. The chairs of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, the Congressional Black Caucus, and the Congressional Asian American uh, Congressional Caucus all have sent a letter to both Secretary Gary Locke and to uh, Attorney General Eric Holder uh -huh. asking specifically that question. Does the Patriot Act trump Title 13 of the U.S. Code, which provides for the confidentiality provisions of the census? Okay. We're waiting for that legal interpretation to come out. We've already been told that the Justice Department has interpreted the laws to say that Title 13 continues to be supreme. Mm -hmm. Now, going to the issue that hmm. Professor Ong raised, uh, is that every time there has been an assault then, 
on the confidentiality of the census, the Census Bureau has gone back and tried to strengthen uh, any kind of provision to ensure confidentiality. Hmm. The most recent example of that was immediately after 9-11, uh, when yeah. the feds uh, were asking the Census Bureau to provide information on Arab Americans. Uh, right. Yes. Now, I sit on the uh, 2010 Census Advisory Committee that was appointed by the U.S. Secretary of Commerce. When we got wind of that, we went to the Census Bureau and said, absolutely not, mm -hmm. can you release any information about Arab Americans? As a result of our protest, the Census Bureau has instituted an ombudsman on privacy, which means every single request for data that's made of the Census Bureau, whether it's made by an outside entity or a, a government agency, has to be cleared by the ombudsman to see what is the purpose for the request of the data, how is the data being used, who's requesting it. Wow. On the other hand, anybody can access census data through the website. Right. But the data that you can access through the website is all statistical data that's already been compiled. So you can find out how many Arab Americans live in Michigan, but you can't get their names, you don't know who they are. Right, right. I want to take us back in history, mm -hmm. and I want to, we've been talking about numbers and, and, and politics a little bit. I want to talk about the, don't want to get too cosmic here, but the soul of America. So I turn to you. <laughs> the soul um, of America. The soul of America. Could you summarize that in 30 seconds, please? Um, you were, backstage, you were talking about just how the census has evolved over the years and how it's kind of, inf well, I don't know, did it influence our, our identity or it reflected the identity? I think oh. it's both. You know, I mean, I, I was doing all this research on the history of the census. And for many of you who don't know, I mean, I think most people think the census is about counting. And that's what I thought. It's really an exercise in counting before I started to do research. And I started to look back since 1790 of how we counted Americans along racial and ethnic lines. And um, back then it was color. And there was a controversy then who should be counted. And should slaves who are black be counted the same as free whites? And because there's money involved and taxation involved, there was a big debate. The Northerners wanted slaves to be counted as the equivalent of free whites, and the Southerners didn't. And they agreed on a compromise that black slaves would be counted as three-fifths of a white person. So in that sense, the census not only cemented the color line, but reinforced how we thought of race, racial inequalities. And these categories have constantly changed, which is really fascinating. I was saying backstage that um, in 1850, we had a category mulatto to try to capture the amount of racial mixing between blacks and whites. Um, in 1890, I believe, they added octroon and quadroon to try to get at precise racial mixtures between blacks and whites. And then in 1930, because there was so much racial mixing, um, they actually dropped that altogether and just used black for anyone with any trace of black ancestry. And hence this idea of the one drop rule, which has stayed so pervasive in the minds of Americans of who is black. And so as a result of all these practices, I think Americans have been become very attuned to identifying blackness and constraining that racial category in and, ways. And yet you said also in that year, 1930, that yeah. they added a category which I'd never heard of. Yeah, in 1930, 1930 alone, Mexican was listed as a racial category. And LULAC, which is... Um, the acronym, which escapes the, me now. Uh, I'll help you. That's the, okay. the League of, that's the League of United Latin American Citizens. It's one of the oldest uh, Latino civil rights groups in, in the country, LULAC. 
Thank you. So they they were very vehemently opposed to having Mexican as a separate racial category because that meant that Mexicans were not white. And LULAC, which was um, a very conservative organization at the time, was very adamant about this idea that Mexicans are white and should not be a separate color category um, and aligned with blacks or Chinese or other groups. And so um, because of their protests, after 1930, they were never listed as a separate racial category. And I think in some ways, because of that, um, it reflected a couple things, that the category of Mexican is not as tightly circumcised or circumscribed (laughs) 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 as black. And um, the boundaries surrounding Mexican are quite different. You're not too far off. You're all paying attention. That's good. Glad you're paying attention. But but, but now there's a certain irony when you look at how Latinos or or Hispanics or whatever we're being called today um, are uh, are categorized today. You gentlemen want to talk about that? We were discussing that quite a bit. Well, everybody will yeah. be asked two questions. Everybody will be asked to identify their race, and they'll have the options to identify themselves as either white, black, Asian, and there are a number of categories under that, Native American, where they can write in their tribe, or some other race, or any combination of the above. Uh-huh. And everybody will also be asked to identify themselves if they're Hispanic or not, and then there'll be four checkoff boxes. Are yes, Hispanic, Mexican, Puerto Rican, Cuban, or some other Hispanic, where people can write in their national origin. Okay. So that's asked of everybody in the country. But you were saying that some people have, that you get all sorts of wild answers to that question. Well, the thing is that in the some other race category, about half of Latinos do not identify as any of the above categories, neither white, black, Asian, or Native American, and they identify as some other race. The problem with that is that OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, does not recognize some other race as an official racial category. Mm-hmm. So even though you're allowed to be ident- self-identify as some other race, the Census Bureau will go back and recode you into one of the categories above. Mm-hmm. In the example see. that I was yeah. giving you about that family, mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. wife is Salvadoran, the husband is Mexican, the two children are citizens, so where do they fit in? I wanted to also offer another example as to this mm-hmm. uh, idea of the census describing mm-hmm. a little bit about the soul or the changing uh, America. One of the um, now answers that we get from the census mm-hmm. is same-sex uh, families or families led by mm-hmm. same-sex couples. It didn't have that question uh, maybe 20 years ago um, and now we do have that information. And whether or not you happen to agree with the issue that it might represent, it is now information that we have about um, another type of American. Um, And especially as we discuss the issue of same-sex marriage and so forth, uh, adoptions by same-sex parents, I think that it becomes very uh, important to have this type of information. Wow. um, Are there there any questions the census um, doesn't ask but you wish it did? I'll tell you one, I wish, uh, I'll, I'll tell you one, um, and I know we can't because this little church-state thing that goes on in our you know, constitution, uh, but I used to edit religion stories for the LA Times, and it would be great to have some specific numbers on religious affiliation. Um, that really can't influence government policy, of course, but it would just be neat to know. Uh, but I guess the whole point with the census, Paul, is that it's got to be useful information, stuff that somehow can affect public policy. Well, actually, I was going to uh, give you your answer. Oh, great. I, that's oh, a yeah, tricky give me an answer. Issue. I, I mean, in some sense, it's, it's tricky. Besides the political aspects of the census, uh, the constitutional requirement, 
one of the greatest things we get out of the census is that we begin to have a sense of ourselves, who we are, you know, our composition, where we stand. I mean, people love to see, for example, uh, what's the median household income? Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons is, where do I stand? You're wrong yeah. to that. It's, so it's just get a sense of the society, but also where we stand relative to society. And there are a number of issues that are fundamental to our identity as individuals, as groups. Religion is one. Mm-hmm. The other one is you know, uh, sexual orientation. And I don't, you know, we get the same-sex partnership in terms of couples indirectly. Yeah. Uh, we don't collect question on sexual orientation. But that is a fundamental question that mm-hmm. is sort of we're grappling with. And so there are things that I wish we could collect, but by the sheer nature of the controversies mm-hmm. or maybe the separation of church and state, we avoid doing that. Do you think there would be any push to ask uh, questions about sexual orientation? Maybe 10 years from now? Uh, There's a push, there's an organization that I work with that we, the group's been trying to do this over the last decade or so in terms of trying to collect better information. Every every question on the census form has to have a legislative purpose. Because it's ultimately every question on either the long Mm -hmm. form, which is now the American Community Survey, asked as a rolling survey, every question there has a legislative purpose. So... The reason they ask housing questions, or how many toilets you have, mm-hmm. or how many miles you spend commuting, all has to do with some kind of legislative program that Congress has requested the information. Now, at some point, we make it to the point where Congress will ask for data on sexual orientation or same-sex marriages. I don't think we'll see that in 2020. Uh, who knows? I may be wrong. I don't think we have a black president today. Yeah. Uh, so mm-hmm. anything can happen in a few years. Can I ask, where is the controversy coming from with same-sex orientation, I mean, or sexual orientation? Where, who, who's opposed to asking that question? I think there are certain people who are uncomfortable and take uh, moral stances. And they would see it as a way of legitimizing it. Well, there's also privacy yeah. concerns. There's privacy concerns. There's somebody who may not want to divulge what their sexual orientation is to the federal government. Especially because some states still criminalize um, gay and lesbian uh, people. Mm-hmm. You know? I wonder, is there a way in which you can ask a question just once, uh, let's say this, in this decennial count, or even in that um, In the American community? community yeah. If Congress decides to add a question, Congress can do that. Because we can and get so really there, creative there. Well, you know, there's questions that need to be asked about internet access. You know, we used to, the, the uh, survey asked now about telephone access to make sure that everybody has universal access to a telephone. Mm-hmm. Well, now that's less meaningful than mm-hmm. do you have access to the internet. So is there a question on the internet? Uh, no. No, not around. yet. And not that's yet. something okay. that reflects the changing nature of the population, mm-hmm. where the census needs to be current, mm-hmm. which is why the American Community Survey is so important, yeah. because it's a rolling survey that's done every year as opposed right. to just every 10 years. Yeah. I want to take us a little back into history, because right now we're talking about, for, for, for you know, the upcoming census, that's self-reported. But uh, Jennifer, you were telling us about how it was conducted in years past. Yeah, for uh, you share that a little for bit? most of the census, most of the history of the census, the census was someone enumerated your racial status. So um, by visual inspection alone, so you weren't the one. Now you decide what race you want to check, and you can check more than one racial category since 2000, which is remarkable, considering the one-drop rule was in effect since for for many years. But before that, a census 
someone working from the census would come to your door and visually inspect and mark. So you can imagine the confusion <laughs> of trying to discern whether someone is an octoroon or a quadroon. <laughs> yeah. wow. um, and there were very specific instructions that if you were a certain percentage eighth, you were this. And if you were more than that percentage, you were this. And so um, you there were certainly undercounts in terms of how many people were reported even as black because you can be multiracial and look phenotypically very different. So um, it wasn't until 1970 that you were given the liberty to mark your own racial status and everything else. I didn't yeah. And it was really because of cost. Oh, but, the, um, but also, uh, there's been um, an interesting history over how the census counted or did not count Native Americans. Could anyone explain what, what was up with that? Well, in the first censuses, uh, Indians not taxed were excluded completely. Right. And that referred to Native Americans who lived on reservations. Mm -hmm. But that has been changed. And in fact, mm -hmm. the whole notion of the three-fifths mm -hmm. of, of a person, a slave being three-fifths of a person, that was abolished when slavery was abolished. Yeah. I believe so it was in the 14th, notion, 14th Amendment. Amendment. 14th Amendment the, was when it was The whole abolished. notion of all persons, all people who reside in this country being persons really is derived from the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. In fact, it would surprise you to hear that some of the proponents of the boycott mm -hmm. uh, of the census believe that that is what we should do with immigrants who are undocumented in this country. Their argument is that if you don't, if you don't represent me, then somehow I shouldn't give you my full count. Mm. Mm. Which is so ridiculous because, in fact, immigrant populations are represented because congressional districts are drawn based on population numbers. That's right. Not voting numbers, not citizen numbers. One important thing, though, about apportionment that would be historic for California, mm -hmm. that this may be the first apportionment of Congress following the census where California will either not gain a seat Mm -hmm. or could potentially lose a congressional seat to some other state. Okay, actually, I'm gonna quickly mention, um, yeah. I saw a list uh, published somewhere uh, that mentioned states that are projected to gain seats. Uh, they are Texas, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Nevada, Oregon, South Carolina, and Utah. Okay, and then... Uh, and what do they all have in common? A lot of Latin, a lot of people named Padilla. Uh, exactly. Actually, you know, yes. um, uh, that's yeah. what they exactly. got. I think those are, <laughs> many of those are yeah. the new destination states yes. where people are going because exactly rent is right. cheaper. It's easier to find mm -hmm. work there than yeah. the people are leaving California. And, and Vargas too, uh, apparently. Apparently, <laughs> 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 uh, and uh, apparently, states that are projected to lose are Ohio, Illinois, Iowa, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Missouri, or Missouri, as one friend of mine says. Uh, so those are the states that look like they're going to lose a bit. So just to put some perspective about what's, what's, what's going on here. Um, the, is this, you know, clearly the census has some image problems. Is, is the Bureau itself responsible for any of this? I mean, uh, sometimes just myths start up, you know, uh, internet blog and things, but is the census, have they fallen down at all and getting the word out? You know, I've, I've spent many years working with the Bureau and I have a great deal of respect for the people who made their careers there because they really believe in the mission mm -hmm. of the organization, that they are the, the world's foremost statistical agency. Uh, so I have great respect for the work that they do, but the fact is that the census is, in, is the most controversial thing that we do as a nation every 10 years, because fundamentally it's only about two things. Mm -hmm. It's about political power, it's about money. Two things that nobody freely gives up, not Ohio mm -hmm. to Texas, yeah. 
neither political power nor resources. But that is at the core of what the census is about. Well, I'll just, yeah, I'm sorry. I'll tell yes. you, I'll tell you who is partly responsible too, though. It's local governments who often, in their attempt to get as many numbers as possible, mm -hmm. forget sometimes the little details. Like what? The county of Los Angeles, for example, in their report to the county of supervisors just recently, offered a number of challenges that the county will face in terms of this up upcoming um, census. Not one word in that 16-page document relates to immigrants, much less to undocumented immigrants, or completely erases the whole debate about what's happening right now with immigration reform and the persecution of immigrants. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's criminal. I really think that's criminal. You know, something else that will be affecting the census is the impact of the recession, mm -hmm. the worst economic crisis since World War II. And the fact is that the Census Bureau is largely conducted by mail. So if you're living the American dream, you have a home, you have a job, chances are you're going to be counted. But if you're living an economic nightmare because you've lost your job, you've lost your home, you've displaced your family, that's the, those are the families that the Census Bureau is going to have a hard time to reach and to identify. So the only way that we're really going to get everybody to be counted is if people themselves want to be counted. If they go out of their way to find those other alternatives to being counted if they don't receive a census form in the mail. How do you make that message more clear? Well, that's, that's in fact why we're working with the California Endowment to get the word out to our communities. Other than this community. Yeah. So my appreciation for the California Endowment for the support. We, we mentioned earlier um, these interesting issues regarding self-reporting in the Latino community. I wonder about the Asian community. Are there similar trends or issues? I'm just curious if you've Do encountered you that at all. Um, why don't you start? Uh, I think uh, the issues are very similar. That is, we have a population that has uh, language barriers. Uh, they also, a number of them come from uh, homelands where there's a distrust of the government. Mm -hmm. And so how do you address those sort of issues? Uh, you also have an enormous number of people who are economically disadvantaged, who have hard lives. And so it's hard to just get them to think about something like filling out a form. Uh, so we have language problems, we have distrust of the government, uh, we have lack of time. Uh, we don't have, for example, the community network that we ought to have to get the message out. The other problem is that, and it's similar, but I, in some ways, many times more difficult. Language, we're not talking about one, one language. One. Mm -hmm. We're talking about dozens of languages. Mm -hmm. And so how do you get the resources and economies and scales to deal with that? It's hard, it's very difficult to do that. So those are, those are real problems. I think the one thing that the census did that was very good was though it broke down Asian as a category because most Asians in the United States don't identify as Asian and wouldn't mark Asian, um, especially immigrants don't come here and think I'm Asian. And so um, Robert Mitsui, I believe in 1970, fought to create different Asian ethnic categories because someone who is, say, Japanese or Korean or Chinese is more likely to mark that than they are Asian. Yes, my name is Javier Mendoza. When is the census finalized, the actual completion of the census? Mm -hmm. 
Well, the census probably will be done sometime over the summer. So forms get mailed out mid-March. You're asked to return them by April 1st. If you don't, then beginning in late April through the summer, enumerators go out door-to-door to try to collect the information. The, con- the legislative deadline to deliver the numbers to the president is December 31st. And that's when each state will know what their total population numbers are and who the winners and losers are in apportioning Congress. And then April 1st, 2011, is when the data are released that will be used then to redraw congressional lines. So it becomes official next, um, next year, basically. Yeah, that's right. Thank so what's, what's all the data then that ends up coming nine years later, 20 years later? Is that just analysis? Those are either the American Community Survey or Census Estimates or the Current Population Survey. See, the Census Bureau collects lots of data, lots of times for different purposes. But the most important uh, collection is the decennial uh, census survey, uh, because that's what's used to reapportion Congress, to reach out state legislative lines, and to distribute you know, billions and billions of dollars. We have a question here to your left. Yeah. I have a question. <clears throat> Do you happen or have an idea how much millions uh, the government allocates to the communities by counting the people and how many millions they might l- lose if they don't count the undocumented? Right. So the latest estimate by the Brookings Institution is that $440 billion are distributed by the federal government to the states and localities every year that somehow uses census data, whether it's for education, for healthcare, for transportation. So if you do the math, each one of us is worth about $1,500 to our communities per year for a decade. Hmm. So each person missed is $15,000 less for your communities for all those purposes that government uses. And that's only the federal money. The federal money. So that's the only states, federal money. the states in their own uh, revenues, they allocate it by population quite often, and cities into neighborhoods uh, by population count. So there's uh, much at risk in terms of the undercount. And again, we're more concerned about the differential undercount than just a pure undercount. Uh, I, I had a question about the group quarters population. If that is, uh, I know it's counted, but is it used in re- reapportionment and uh, the dis- distribution of funds? Absolutely. Yes. Group quarters data, and those are dorms, prisons, nursing homes, anything that is not a single family residence or an apartment. And those data are collected as part of the decennial census. And one of the major controversies here is where should individuals who are being incarcerated be counted? Mm-hmm for purposes of apportionment. Should they be counted at a prison where they're being located for a couple of years out in Bakersfield, or perhaps someplace in central Los Angeles where they really live? Because that person's gonna return to LA, soon the LA benefit from that person's residency in LA for a decade, both for political purposes and for funding, as opposed to Bakersfield. But what what is the answer, how does that work? The policy is incarcerated persons are counted and placed at the uh, location of their incarceration. That's one of the great civil rights debates that we're going to engage in over the next decade. Oh, interesting. Okay. Question yes. in the center here. Hi, my name is Mary Mashtiani. Uh You mentioned that the, there's two categories when uh, looking at race and ethnicity. There's one eth- ethnic uh, category, which is Hispanic or non-Hispanic, and then there are the, the racial categories. And you talked a little bit about the issue with response, and um, what are the implications of having these be separate categories uh, in terms of not only just count and number, but um, broader implications in terms of you know ethnic and racial categories and their, the way they evolve in this country? So, Well, I, I think one of the things you got to realize is that 
the construction of these group identities only have meaning in, uh, as a social and political construction, uh, hopefully anchored in people's daily lives. So what we use, for example, a good example, race category, we have underneath the Asians, Chinese, Filipinos, Koreans, Vietnamese, and so forth. Those are not racial categories as most people think about them. They're really ethnic nationality groups. So we're already confounding the idea of ethnicity and race. And so the answer is that it will change with historical time periods uh, because our identity, our place in society changes. The reality today is that we do have a sizable Latino population who have different racial backgrounds. They're an important population that needs to be counted and we need to know about their characteristics, their problems, their concerns. And so we collect, we create, these categories get debated quite often within the Bureau, among the advisory committee, and outside. But uh, I'm just speaking as a researcher, the way I think about it is, do these groups really represent something that we as a society ought to be concerned about in terms of how we act as a society, how we think about mm -hmm. governmental policy and so forth? The answer is that I, for the Latinos to have a separate category for Hispanic origin, and that's the term for that question, mm -hmm. makes sense in this time period what about uh, in the people, what, live in. What about people from the Middle East? What if I'm from Iraq? What, 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 what portions, what boxes do I check? White. Mm -hmm. white. That's what the Census yeah. Bureau will tell you. Yeah. You're white. You yeah. have the option under, the, we, on the long form now, the American Community Survey, there's the ancestry question and you could do that. If you're really insistent on doing something, you could check other and then you start writing it in. But then the girl is gonna go back and mark you back as white. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Oh, maybe uh, not. It, it sometimes shows up. It's a campaign. Can I, can I follow up on Miriam's question? She's one of my students. And so I actually, we were talking about this backstage about this debate of how to categorize Hispanic. Um, and, and the point is, how do you most effectively count any population. And so there has been debate, even among scholars, that if you create Hispanic as a racial group, that more, fewer will identify as white and more will identify just as Hispanic. So for instance, about um, half to 60% of Hispanics racially identify as white. Um, the other most and the um, only six percent identify as black, and the other choose some other race and write in some Hispanic origin. And there have been there's been one study that's shown that if you create Hispanic as a racial group along with the others, the the percentage who identifies as white goes down to 13.7 percent. And so the categories are really meaningful in some ways because they make you think about who you are and how you talk about race. And so they're not just categories, which is, I think, the question that you had. And what um, Paul Ong was saying was that these categories constantly evolve over time. They haven't been static since 1970 or since... Um, and that's almost the flip side of the, of the 1930 census when LULAC said, let's eliminate Mexican as a racial right. category. Right. I, I don't know if you guys realize this or not, right. but the census has implicitly already created a new category, which is non-Hispanic whites. We actually report the American Community Survey separately for Asians, separately for African Americans, separately for Hispanics, but there's a new category that they report separately for, 
non-Hispanic whites. We, they report the data on housing, mm -hmm. on their employment. Mm -hmm. uh, they stand equal footing with the other racial categories. And so what we think about in conceptualization, uh, practice is evolving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, that's going to shape how the way we think about it and people look at the data and use the data. And I would argue even mm -hmm. that that's kind of like the process of Americanization, you know, like mm. what new Americans becoming part of, you know, their new land, uh, whether or not, you know, we happen to agree with that or we call it assimilation or whatever, acculturation, I do believe that something is happening by the way in which people see themselves within their new homeland. I guess I have a statement and a couple of questions. My name is Mark Parra, and I'm very excited and very stimulated and engaged by this conversation. Um, I am the face, I guess, of America. I'm, uh, my mother is Danish and Navajo Indian, and my father's Mexican-American, so I'm very much looking forward to filling out this census <laughs> survey this Check year. all the boxes. Yeah, yeah, right? Exactly. And I'm a gay American with HIV, so I'm, you know, I, I have a lot of, a lot of uh, questions, concerns about policies regarding this census. I'm new to the process of working to support this census. I work within the health and human services field. It's my understanding that this year we're going to be uh, able to enumerate homeless and hard-to-count populations at targeted non-shelter locations. I'm wondering, do you, I, I have not, it has not occurred to me to ask this question, are we going to be doing something like visual categorization based on race? Okay, so that's one question. I know that we're going to be doing uh, at least counting heads, right? So, and I'm very concerned about how, you know, we're going to be able to use this to, especially in L.A. County where we have so many homeless and, well, know, I, individuals. And, the, and okay, maybe I should let you, let you ask that because I have another question also. You made a comment uh, tied to that, uh, working within the mental health field. My coworker who is here with me and I, we, we do want to ensure that for those that we, you know, we work with, we do, you know, we want to align ourselves with those who are doing outreach to the homeless and hard to count. Uh, are you going to be able to provide some guidance uh, to uh, LA County government and to our system, and and what can we do to ensure that we count, especially you know Latino individuals? Okay, well, there's two questions. The first one relates to visual categorization. You want to take that one? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, this is actually one of the greatest challenges for the Census Bureau. Because if they go to homeless shelters, soup kitchens, which they will the weekend of March 27th, 28th, and 29th, then they'll have people there in a safe environment where presumably enumerators could interview people. But one of the phenomena that has ha occurred over the past few years because of the recession and foreclosures is that you have people living out of their cars now. Yeah. You know, I, I live in Mount Washington, and all along Marmion Way, every morning, there's about 10 RVs that are parked there in the morning. And you know people are spending the night there. So somehow the census is going to have to enumerate those people. And, you know, how many enumerators want to go and knock on somebody's car door? And how safe is that for an enumerator? So in those in, uh, situations, yeah, probably. It'll be all visualization. It's like, well, I see one person in there, maybe two persons, and guess at their age and their racial or Hispanic origin category. So, you know, it's an imprecise science. Mm -hmm. And again, this goes back to my original point. People are going to want to be counted. Because these are the kinds of barriers that we're going to have to overcome to get everybody enumerated. I, we are going to face probably a new challenge in counting the homeless. We've always had problems counting the homeless, uh, in part because the very nature of their situation, mm -hmm. which is they don't have a location to go to. We could do the shelters, that's easy. 
You could do clustering, particularly in areas okay. like along Santa Monica, in Santa Monica, and along the beach and so forth, where you know they cluster. But we actually have a new phenomenon, and we don't know the magnitude of it. That is, you could be homeless, but have a sh temporary shelter. You could be, for example, living a week or two at your relative's home. You could be living at a friend's home because you've been dislocated. You're not without shelter, but you don't have a home. We don't know, because this phenomenon has actually gotten, we suspect, very large with this recession. Mm -hmm. We don't know really how to handle that. We don't know how individuals in those situations, let's say you were there in April, first week, but then you moved on. How are you gonna be counted? And if this population, this is a new population, this is the dislocated population that is they lost a home, but they're not without shelter, but it's very temporary. Yeah. And that's a new challenge on top of all the challenges we've always had in terms of counting the homeless. I think we have time just for one more question. So, sir, I'll just invite you. You had two questions that maybe afterwards you could chat with some of the panel members and they could answer it for you. But Actually, uh, I have we two, have more, two more Pardon me. So, one over here. <laughs> Good evening. My name is Dr. Michi Fu. I belong to a couple of Taiwanese-American organizations, one of them being North America Taiwanese Professors Association. And we're trying to raise awareness among the Taiwanese-American population to highlight the within-group difference among mm -hmm. Asians. So we're encouraging folks to write in Taiwanese under other Asian category. Mm -hmm. um, but I also heard someone say that folks will go back from the Census Bureau and recode. So what would happen if someone wrote in Taiwanese mm -hmm. under other Asian? Good question. Well, they'll get recoded if they identify themselves as of some other race which is not one of, one of the above four racial categories. But if someone writes in other Asian, they will be classified as Asian. I can't answer whether or not they also will be enumerated as Taiwan, Taiwanese. I don't know if Paul or, or the professor have an answer to that. The answer is that uh, we probably don't know. The answer probably would depend on how frequently it occurs. If it occurs frequently enough, uh, the census may not report it, but they certainly will have information on it. A good example is, uh, although people said that 2000 is the first time we allow people to check off more than one race, it's not actually the first time people have done that. Yeah, right. That is, you go back to the 1990, you look at the, the forms mm -hmm. that people filled out, people who are a biracial or multiracial background insisted that regardless of the instruction, they would check off more than one. And actually, the frequency of that happening in 1990 is not that much different from 2000. Mm -hmm. And actually, the census has data on that. It just doesn't report it. So uh, part of the answer is that uh, I, I always encourage people, if they feel the categories don't fit, they ought to go ahead and fill it in. It's a whole different process about trying to get the Bureau to uh, code it and then probably report it. Uh, it doesn't mean it won't happen. I've seen enough examples where in the past they, they kept that sort of data. I would also say that there's an opportunity for those who do ACS under Ancestry to make sure they report that also. Uh, I think under the Ancestry nationality, there's still much more detail that allows that to happen. So there are many multiple sources. Uh, so if it is important for you and you think your community to try to identify yourself that way, you should take the opportunity to do so. There's no guarantee it's actually gonna happen, but you have to take the first step. And it could, it could change things down the yeah. road. I think we have time for just our last yeah. question. All right.
right. Um, I'm lucky I get the last question. Um, my name is Melanie De La Cruz Viesca, and my question is: uh, Have you or any of the organizations you work with done any messaging or created any education materials on the difference between 2010 census and American Community Survey? Because I think a lot of people don't realize they might get both surveys this year, and they might throw out one of them, and we get the really rich data from the American Community Survey that has the data on poverty and education and income. We. Uh, let me take a shot at that. We haven't necessarily even gone to the second part of that, of that second uh, long uh, survey. But on the first one, what we are suggesting to folks is, if you don't want anybody knocking on your door, fill out your survey when you receive it by mail. You know, we do recognize that it's a reality. There is fear. You know, and you know, before it used to be that ICE agents would come to your door and take you away if you open the door. But if you don't want to, open the door, just fill it out and send it in. The other thing is equating the census with important civic activities such as your taxes, voting, and other very important representative activities. But, and to answer your question specifically about the American Community Survey, so every month 250,000 households get the long form. Uh, so right during the census, March, April, May, June, that's a million households. And we had this conversation at the Census Advisory Committee uh, last month, and the bureau, we asked the bureau, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. And they said, look, we're sending out 100 million census forms. At the same time, we're only sending out 1 million ACS forms. So we're not going to do any messaging, because in relation, that's such a minute number that we don't want to cause any additional confusion hmm. uh, about this. And the fact is that the number of enumerators per ACS form is probably greater than the number of enumerators per census form because it's a, a smaller number, they're targeted, they know exactly which addresses get the ACS form, and they follow up with them every month. But it's, it's an issue. What's going to be more uh, important, I think, is when ACS data are reported out every year. So there will be a number reported out from the ACS at the end of 2010 around the same time that we get the census numbers from the decennial 2010 census. So they're going to be two separate population numbers. The difference is, one is the actual count of the U.S. population. The other is a count of the characteristics of the U.S. population. People won't distinguish between that, and they're going to say, how can we have two different numbers? And then we're going to be re re really confused. Well, as you can see, the census clarifies everything. Um, so, <laughs> just want to say, I mentioned by the way, if uh, if you don't, if you've not visited it, uh, I encourage you to go to the census website. It is rather compulsive. Uh, you find yourself wanting to know how many phones are you know uh, <laughs> used in certain parts of Idaho. Um, I dealt with a reporter who covered veterans affairs, and to my surprise, discovered voluminous information about veterans, which mm -hmm. is quite fascinating, actually. So visit the website, um, you will, uh, but just be prepared to have a cup of coffee. You'll spend several hours um, uh, perusing the site. And other than that, I th would like you to thank our panelists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.